Well, recently a survey was conducted to discover what people believed about the Bible and about various religious topics. And the survey is called the State of Theology, and it's conducted every couple of years by a ministry called uh, Ligonier, and uh, also in partnership with Lifeway. And uh, they uh, ask people to respond to statements like, God is perfect and cannot make a mistake. And you're supposed to say, I agree with that, or I disagree with that, or I'm not sure. Uh, One of the statements people were asked to respond to was, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Some of the responses were troubling, but some of them were very encouraging. For example, more people affirmed that the resurrection of Jesus really happened than I would have expected. Because they're not serving just Christians. They're serving all kinds of people. Now, I sent out the same survey to our church after looking at this survey. The results I'm sharing are not the results of our church's survey. The results of our churches, those from our church who responded to the survey, were vastly more encouraging than these. But I want to share with you some of the results from this broader survey, and even some of the results among those uh, identified as evangelical Christians, because it's Uh, relates directly to what we've been talking about in the Gospel of John and even what we're going to see this morning. So in that broader survey, in response to the statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, 40% of the people surveyed strongly agreed with that statement. And another 15% somewhat agreed. So more than half agreed that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God. Now, if you filter those results to see what those with evangelical beliefs say, 70% strongly agreed with that statement. In response to a similar statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but not God, 31% of all those surveyed strongly agreed, and another 22% somewhat agreed. So again, more than half agreed with the statement that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Again, if you filter those results to see what those who are identified as evangelicals say, 38% strongly agreed. Only 50% strongly disagreed. So only half of those surveyed who are identified as evangelicals disagree with the statement that Jesus is not God, and 70% affirm that Jesus was created by God. Now, it's possible that some of those people just didn't read the questions carefully, right? Maybe they just read, Jesus is the first and greatest, yes, and they didn't read the last part about being who was created, but the other statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, I mean, that's that's pretty hard to understand how they would even miss that. Everything that we have seen in our study of the Gospel of John aims to make the answer to those questions or the the proper response to those statements really, really clear. Jesus himself, in his own words, makes clear that he's not just a great teacher. 
that he's claiming to be God. John, the apostle, as he writes the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, makes really clear that we cannot understand the story of Jesus unless we understand who he is. And the first thing John tells us about who he is, is that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. In our passage this morning in John chapter 8, Jesus is going to make probably the clearest statement on this matter that he ever spoke. And the results, again, the results of our survey for our church were much, much better, profoundly encouraging, probably in part because it just so happens we've been hearing this over and over and over in John. But it's a reminder that not everybody who says they're a Christian knows what Christians believe. Not everybody who says they believe in Jesus knows who Jesus really is. Knows that he's the son of God. That he's fully equal with God. That he's not just a great teacher. But if we pay attention to what Jesus himself says. We cannot miss that truth. If we pay attention to how the people who were opposed to Jesus responded to him and why they responded that way, we also can't miss what Jesus was claiming about himself. So let me read for us John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. Jesus is in the middle of a conversation with some of the Jews of his day. And he says, this is what they say to him. It says, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, He will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So Jesus has just been talking to this group of Jewish people, and he has told them that though they are physically descended from Abraham, They're not really Abraham's children. Instead, he calls them children of the devil. 
And the reason why he says they're children of the devil is because they are acting like the devil acted. The devil is a murderer and a liar. They are trying to kill Jesus, and they won't listen to what he says, which is the truth. So, instead of listening to that and asking themselves, you know, does he maybe have a point here? Might we not be on the team we think we are? Maybe our actions betray something about us that we don't realize. Instead of thinking that, instead, they hurl insults at Jesus. They, they take his comments as an insult. They're not meant as an insult. They're just the truth. They're meant to expose their heart and their need for Jesus. Their need for salvation. But they hurl back at him, well, you're a Samaritan. And you have a demon. Now, we know that the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. Jews did not think highly of the Samaritans. That's why Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well in Samaria was such a big deal. So, by calling Jesus a Samaritan, they are, of course, attempting to insult him. And, of course, insulting the Samaritans on the way by using that as an insult. But the worst one, of course, is claiming that he has a demon. It's not the only time that somebody suggested that Jesus was under the influence of demons. At one point, uh, someone claimed that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, which Jesus pointed out made absolutely no sense whatsoever, because then Satan would be fighting against himself, and a house divided cannot stand. But what they're probably inferring here is that Jesus is insane, that he's lost his mind. Later in the Gospel of John, in chapter 10, verse 20, some say, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? They probably mean those to be the same thing. Someone who has a demon is just out of his mind and there's no point in listening to such a person. That's what they're saying about Jesus. You're a Samaritan and you're crazy. You're under the influence of the devil. You have lost it. These things that you are saying, these claims that you are making, indicate that there's no reason why anybody should listen to you. That's what they're saying. But Jesus responds, apparently calmly, at least I envision him saying this quite calmly, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. How would we know if somebody was under the influence of a demon? Would they be somebody who sought to honor God and all that they did? Of course not. Right? They'd be opposing God and all that they did. But what has Jesus been doing? Has he been doing the kinds of things that God is honored by? Yeah. I mean, he's speaking the truth. He's loving people. He's healing. He's calling people to repentance. He's seeking to honor his Father in all that he does. What about the people who are accusing him of being under demonic influence? What are they doing? They are so filled with hatred toward Jesus that they are trying to find a way to kill him, an excuse to get rid of him. Which one of those is demonic? Which one of those is evil? Which one of those honors God and which one of those dishonors God? It's not hard to figure out. 
That's why Jesus can so clearly say, I honor the Father and you dishonor me. And based on other things Jesus has said, we know to dishonor him is also to dishonor the Father. Back in chapter 5, he said that the Father had given all judgment to the Son, that's Jesus, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. If the Father's intention is for us to honor His Son with the same honor we honor Him, what are we doing if we dishonor the Son? We're also dishonoring the Father. So Jesus says, you're dishonoring me, which means you're dishonoring the Father, while I'm honoring the Father. So which one of us is on Satan's side here? Answer's pretty clear. In other words, what Jesus is saying to them comes down to this. When what you claim you are and what you do are wildly different, which one is true? They claim to be children of Abraham. They claim to be children of God. Yet they are filled with anger to the point of desiring to murder. And they refuse to listen to the one who speaks the truth. Which one is more accurate about who they are? What they do shows who they are. That's what Jesus is saying. When he says, you're children of the devil. You are imitating Satan and your actions speak louder than your words. Your actions speak the truth about who you are more clearly than your words do. So, here's what that means for us. Same thing is true for us. Is it what we claim about ourselves that is most accurate or what we do that reflects most accurately who we are. The Bible is clear all over the place. It's what we do that gives the clearest evidence, the most accurate evidence about who we are. Now, let me be quick to say what Satan loves to do is every time we sin in any way to say, see, you're not a Christian. I knew it, and everybody else knew it too. Or they would know it if they knew what I know about you. This is not that. Okay? Christians sin. Faithful Christians sin. This is not saying every time you sin, you're proving that you're not actually a Christian. Because if that was the case, nobody would be a Christian. The question is, does your character, your Habits, the way that you live, the things that characterize you, are they more in line with the devil or with the Holy Spirit? Or more in line with what Paul calls the works of the flesh or with what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit? Peter had a moment where he denied Jesus. That was bad, right? Really bad. But that did not define Peter. That was not who he was. That was out of character for him, and he repented, and he was restored. But the people in this story, they've got their heels dug in against Jesus. That's different than Peter's 
temporary lapse. Right? That's what, I'm, that's what I'm saying. There's a difference between this is your habit, this is your character, this is your life, and having a totally different character, but sometimes slipping back into sin. Does that make sense? So here's what you have to ask yourself. Which one of these characterizes your life, your actions, your words? Is it what Paul calls the works of the flesh and lists this way? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Because Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he does not mean by that, if you've ever had a fit of anger, you're not going to heaven. He does mean by that, if people who know you know, he, you just never know when that guy's going to go off. And it happens all the time. Then you should be concerned. Here's what that list means. Part, part of it. Let me highlight part of it. Those who are characterized by enmity which means hostility, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Even in the name of religion or religious politics are not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. They are not walking by the Spirit. They are filled with the works of of the flesh. That's what the Bible says. There are plenty of people who do worldly things, live in worldly ways, claiming they are doing it for the kingdom of God. Don't listen to them. They're wrong. If you want to know what Jesus would say to them, how Jesus would respond to them. Just look at how he responds to the Jews in this passage who are hostile toward him, have animosity toward him. They hate him, but they think they're on the right side religiously. They want to get rid of Jesus, and they think they're being faithful to God. And Jesus says, you're not. So we have to watch out for that. Instead, we need to make sure that the kind of people we are are the kind of people Paul describes in the next verse of Galatians 5 when he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, he says, there is no law. And listen to this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, if you've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, those passions and desires can still rear their ugly head. But they no longer dominate you. They no longer control you. They no longer characterize your life. Those things have been put to death. Don't let anybody tell you that you can be a Christian 
and live by the works of the flesh, and that's okay. The Bible is really clear that if we belong to Jesus, what our life is going to look like is a life of love, a life of joy, a life of peace, patience, of kindness, of goodness, of gentleness, of faithfulness, and self-control. Now, are we going to fall short of that? Absolutely. Every day. Multiple times a day. But will the people who know us and watch us know that that is more who we are than the other list? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's... Are you going to have to grow into some of that? Yes, that's what sanctification is. That's what growing in the Christian life is. I I hope that we're all more loving five years from now than we are right now. But we ought to already be loving, right? We're not talking about perfection. But we are talking about a real difference. Knowing Jesus and having the Holy Spirit does change you. It has to. It has to. The Bible is crystal clear about that. So, those opposed to Jesus are not who they think they are. They're not who they say they are. And the reason this matters so much is because the stakes are incredibly high. Jesus says in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, that's the kind of thing that you can't say unless you're more than a good teacher. Right? Only God can say, if you want to live, you've got to listen to me. Anybody else says that, you get super wary. Right? No, thank you. What does Jesus mean when he says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death? He just said earlier, if anyone abides in my word, keeps my word, same thing. If anyone abides in my word, then you're really my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So here's what Jesus is claiming in this chapter. If you believe me and stick with me, you believe what I say, you seek to walk in my ways, you trust me. If you do that then you will be set free from sin and you will escape death. You'll have life. Those are pretty tremendous claims. What does he mean? What does he mean when he says, if you follow me, you'll never see death? The the Jews, predictably, right, because they're already hostile toward Jesus, they react by saying, now we know that you have a demon. Now we know you're crazy. Because, they say, Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Abraham died, Moses died, the prophets died, and yet here you are saying, if you listen to me, you won't die. We know what to do with that kind of talk. Ignore it. Or get rid of it. But they completely misunderstand what he's saying. Jesus is not saying that anyone who follows him will escape physical death. I'm not saying that. 
He's saying anyone who follows him will escape spiritual death. If you say, well, how, how are they supposed to know that? He didn't specify that. Well, the whole conversation has been about the fact that there are both physical and spiritual realities. And the Jews Jesus is talking to have been focused on the physical realities while he's been talking about the spiritual realities. He says, if you abide in my word, you will be free. The Son will set you free. And they say, well, we're not slaves. And he says, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You may not be physically enslaved, but spiritually you're enslaved to sin. And they say, well, we are children of Abraham. We're children of God. We're not slaves. Jesus says, yeah, you're children of Abraham in one sense. But in another sense, you're not. Physically, you're descended from Abraham. True. But spiritually, you're nothing like Abraham. Because Abraham believed God's promise about my coming before I even got here. And now I'm here and you not only won't listen to me, you want to kill me. Spiritually, you are not the offspring of Abraham. So when he says, if anyone abides in my word, keeps my word, he will not taste death. He doesn't mean you won't physically die, which is what they think he means. What he means is... You will escape spiritual death. You will instead have spiritual life. And if that sounds like a cheap consolation prize, remember what Paul said in Philippians. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So I'd rather die so that my soul would go into the presence of Jesus right now. That'd be a whole lot better than here. One reason is Paul's in jail when he's writing that. This world is hard. It's painful. Life here is not always great. But you know what's a whole lot better? Being in the presence of Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. If you abide in my word, though you die physically, you will spiritually live forever. That's what eternal life is. And not just your soul will go into the presence of God immediately after your death, which is wonderful and good. But then when Jesus comes back, You'll also receive new physical life when your body is raised from the dead. You'll be raised like Jesus was, and you'll live with Him in a new creation forever and ever where there is no more death. That's what Jesus is saying. Everyone who keeps His word will receive. That's the good news. That's the gospel. If you trust me, Jesus says, if you would own up to your sin and recognize that I'm the Savior, that I'm God, then you could have life. You could be set free from sin. You could be forgiven. Instead, you're following in the footsteps of Satan, trying to get rid of him. I came so that I could save you. I came so you would turn to me. That's his invitation. And then Jesus gets really, really clear about who he is. Because they say as they are talking about how preposterous they think it is that Jesus would be able to keep people from dying, at the end of verse 53, they say, Who do you make yourself out to be? And though they ask it with hostility, that is the right question. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you claim that you are? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
Jesus says, first of all, in verse 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. I'm not trying to make much of myself. right? The Father glorifies me. You claim that He's your God, but you're apparently not listening to Him, right? because He's bearing witness about me. Not only that, but He says in verse 55, But you have not known Him. You don't even know God. You think you do, but you don't. And the reason why I know you don't is because I do know him and I came from him. And if you knew him, then you would listen to me. But they don't. Then he says, your father Abraham, verse 56, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Here's another difference between you and Abraham who you claim as your father. Your father Abraham was looking forward to my coming. He was glad to see it. You hate it. Want to be rid of me. Again, you're not like Abraham. They again sort of explode, it it feels like. You're not yet 50 years old. and Have you seen Abraham? Abraham was 2,000 years ago. What do you mean Abraham rejoiced to see your day? And here's Jesus's probably clearest statement he makes anywhere about who he is. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And he does not say, notice, he does not say before Abraham was, I was. That would just mean, man, you're really old. You've been around a really long time. An angel could say before Abraham was, I was. And a created being Older than Abraham could say that, but Jesus is not a created being. Who is he claiming to be? Before Abraham was, I am. What would every Jew who heard that statement know that Jesus was claiming? Say, remember when Moses was at the burning bush? And he said, God, if you're going to send me to these people to tell them that you're going to deliver them, I need to know who to tell them you are. What do I say your name is? And God said, here's what you tell them. I am. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. That's my name. And 12, 13, 14, 1500 years later, Jesus stands in front of a group of the children of Israel who say to him, who do you make yourself out to be? They could have asked, what is your name? Who are you trying to say that you are? And Jesus says, I'll give you the same answer I gave to Moses. I am. I've always been. I always will be. I simply exist. Now I took on flesh at a particular time, was born into the world as the Son of Man, but I remained the Son of God. I didn't quit being God. Now I'm the God-Man, the God who took on flesh, but I'm still God. So Jesus was not created by God. He is God. Jesus is not just a great teacher. In fact, he would be a terrible teacher if he wasn't God because he claimed to be God. And that's not the kind of teacher I want to listen to if he's wrong. And you shouldn't either. 
But he's not wrong. He's not making outrageous claims. He's speaking the truth. He is God in the flesh. That is why he can promise eternal life to all who believe him. He can give life that never ends because he has no beginning and his life has no end. Trust him. Stick with him. Believe his words. Believe that he knows what's best for us, what's right and good and true. Believe in Him and He will give you the Holy Spirit. He will make you a new creation so that you will be characterized by those fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Because really all that means is that the Holy Spirit will make you like Jesus. Let's pray.